Welcome to Thought Crime and Keto Crime, where Tracy does the sleuthing so you don't have to. Hey everyone, welcome back to Keto and Crime and Thought Crime. Uh, today we are delving headfirst into Chad Daybell's third book in his time of, Times of Turmoil, Standing on Holy Ground series called Days of Fury. And as you may have seen on my community post, that um, this book delves full tilt boogie into the supernatural. So this one's going to be a wild ride. Um, I have to admit that I have enjoyed this doing this. And there's one more book to go, and then we're going to move on to some other things. I've got some stuff coming up on uh, Jeffrey Epstein and uh, Giziel Maxwell. Um, that I think you'll enjoy as well as some other cases, but we're always going to keep on top of the Daybell, Daybell Vallow case because it is so interesting. Also, one brief update on it. Uh, evidently, the, the first round of charges against Lori Vallow, that is the uh, failure to support and abandonment of minor children, have been dropped. So with it, that $1 million bond. So her bond is now essentially $1 million instead of two because they did drop those charges and don't want anybody to panic. That's not unusual because the bodies of the children were found. So she's probably about to be indicted for that, I would imagine. So they, they had to drop the, you know, failure to support and abandonment because that would refer to live children. And we know that they're no longer missing, considered alive, that they are in fact deceased. So it's nothing unusual that they did drop those, but I wanted to bring that out there. And now, without further ado, um, let's get into the book. But one quick thing, I want, I want to say thank you to all the new subscribers. It's been wonderful having so many new people come into the community. Uh, I appreciate all the comments and all the likes. And it, 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 that's the main thing you can do to help the channel is just hit that like button for the YouTube algorithm. Also hit subscribe. About 60% of my viewers are still not subscribed. So if you could, hopefully give me your subscription and also hit that bell icon down there so that you get a notification when I upload. I generally upload only three times a week. I'm not a spam channel. I don't continuously bombard your notification box. Occasionally I might do four videos, but it's very rare. Usually I stick to three well-researched videos a week. And, um, we got some exciting things planned. Also, if you want to support the channel, I have merch, new merch down below. I also have a Patreon, my PayPal, Cash App, all that's down there. If you want to support the channel, because I am true crime, lots of times my stuff is on limited ads. So it always helps to keep the channel growing. So, but like I said, none of that is required. It's always appreciated though. So now let's delve into Days of Fury. Okay, we literally pick up about a month after the second book left off, and the oil embargo imposed by members of the UN coalition, the ones that are about to invade America, they have cut off all oil supply to the United States, causing gas prices to spike. Uh, there's a water shortage because of busted Pipelines and utilities going amok. Cities have devolved into basically, you know, rule of riots, rule of 
gangs and things of that nature. I mean, it's bad. I mean, people are having to drink instant coffee and eat Hydrox cookies. That's how bad things are in the United States at this time. So we pick up with uh, Garrett Foster, Nathan Foster's father, who, as you recall, joined the United Nations Peacekeepers. Uh, he's rolling with the Russian commander Klum Klumatov toward Utah. Remember, he's been kind of tapped to lead the invasion into Utah because he's from Utah. And they are rolling through Nevada toward Utah. And they've stopped at a couple of casinos and small Nevada towns, and instead of trying to calm the crowds and, you know, offer them food and help, the peacekeepers are literally just shooting people willy-nilly. If, if a crowd gathers, they shoot them. If somebody comes up asking for help, they shoot them. So the true, the true plan of what these people are planning is coming fruition, because they're shooting American citizens willy-nilly. And... Garrett's starting to feel real guilty about even feigning to be loyal to these people, and he's starting to plan his escape. Then we cut to Aaron Shaw. Remember, Marie's dad had made it to Salt Lake City and hooked up with Elder Bushman, who was the high-ranking LDS elder or saint that he had been sending his coded messages from the uh, data center disguised as recipes to, and he's teamed up with him, and they are now making their way from Elder Bushman's house, which is on the outskirts of Salt Lake City, toward the actual LDS temple and community center in Salt Lake City. Remember, uh, the earthquake caused some of the dams to burst, and the whole Utah Valley there was flooded. So there's floodwaters, there's earthquake damage, and they are making their way toward the Mormon temple. When they get there, they find a couple of guards standing outside. Elder Bushman gives them, remember, the passcode that all members of the mechanic missionaries and other other high-ranking officials have a set of passwords. He gives them that. They let them in. While they are waiting, the guard kind of, you know, scans them and proves that they don't have a chip. He takes them down into some secret catacombs underneath the temple there, and they hook up with Elder Smith. Remember him? He was one of the heads of the uh, MM program, and they confirm that the prophet, the president of the Mormon Church is still alive, though not in Salt Lake City. He has been taken to safety elsewhere. So we all know that. And then Elder Bushman kind of confides that they know that a UN convoy is on the way to Salt Lake City and they need to start finding all the missing Mormon leaders. They discuss this thing known as the Quorum of Seventy, which is a high-ranking Council of Mormon Elders, and they need to reunite this quorum and make their way out of Salt Lake City to rejoin the Prophet. And guess where they're going to rejoin the Prophet? Two guesses, and the first one doesn't count. Rexburg, Idaho, folks. Rexburg, Idaho is considered, is going to be the new LDS headquarters until they go to Missouri to build New Jerusalem and Zion begin. So 
everybody's going to be leaving Salt Lake City and moving to Rexburg, Idaho, where there's a huge gathering of loyal saints. <coughs> Call. So they discuss plans to head to Idaho. Meanwhile, we cut back to Garrett and the UN convoy rolling into Utah. They get to some of the outer cities in Utah, and Garrett knows that there should be Mormon temples here, but he's not seeing them. And he remembers a passage from the Book of Mormon that says that God will literally cause illusions to hide Mormon temples, so he believes that God has hidden them from view. And later on we find out that is true, that God is hiding Mormon churches and Mormon temples from the views of non-Mormons. So again, Supernatural plays a heavy part in this book. So continuing on, we cut to Nathan, Marie. Remember, Nathan and Marie were married at uh, Nauvoo. And then they reunited with Carol and Denise at the Wasberg camp. And now they are trying to make it to Salt Lake City. They are near Hebron, uh, Utah. And they are almost out of, they've managed to refill their water and some streams and stuff, but they're almost out of food, almost out of water, and they are exhausted. The one good thing that's happened, they make a big deal of sh saying that um, Denise, remember Nathan's younger half-sister, who was raised Catholic by Garrett and by her mother Vanessa, who was a Latina, they have raised her Catholic, but now she wants to convert to LDS because of all the wonderful things that she's seen and that Nathan has told her, and he has pretty much given her the entire, I don't know how else to clarify it, the entire onboarding class for going to LDS while they're walking, and she wants to be baptized when they get to Salt Lake City. So they continue walking, trying to get to Salt Lake City. Like I said, they're near Hebron. Utah, and Nathan approaches a stream that he immediately recognizes that because he's made deliveries there as an MM, and he remembers there is a white camp. Remember, there's white camps where all the saints that he did the first call of the prophet went, and then there's blue camps where people that realize later on should have listened. Well, he remembers there's a white camp near Hebron, and he says, hopefully they can find some help there. So he puts the the ladies under a tree, tells them to rest, drink some water. He's going to see if he can't find the entrance to the camp and get them some help. So he starts walking past the stream up to the mountainous area where he knows the entrance to the Herb Hebron camp to be. He recognizes the entrance, starts to head down the little dirt road, dirt path, and a guy on a four-wheeler comes at him full speed wearing camouflage with a gun. This guy holds him at bay and asks him what he's doing there. His name is Paul Jackson. He's actually a member of the Hebron camp that is on guard. And he pulls out a smartphone that is not a Samsung, it's not an iPhone, it's not an L, you know, a LG, any, any brand of cell phone or smartphone you might know. It's just a strange looking phone. And he turns it on and starts to type scan basically uh, Nathan's face face recognition and then he also starts typing some information too and Nathan jokingly says I don't think you're trying to connect to AT&T and T-Mobile are you and he goes nope I'm connecting to, to Zoom Zoom but not the Zoom we know 
This Zoom stands for the Zionist Official Membership Database. Zoom. This is the LDS Cellular Network. Can you hear me now? Good. Zoom. And he says that it is a network that was created with the help of a double agent they had working at the um, NAS, of course that's Aaron, and that they have managed to sub-tie onto government networks and kind of fly under the radar with their own cellular network. And all the information of all White Camp members are in there, so they can tell who's who. And immediately he f figures out that Nathan is a MM member. He's uh, trusted, loyal, has all the has no chip, so he's good to go. Nathan tells him about the the ladies that he left his wife and uh, mother-in-law and little sister. He left down the way. He also types in their information and discovers that they are either they are all unchipped and like Nathan are considered fugitives because they removed their chips. And he's okay with that. So they go down, they grab, they grab the ladies, and they head into the Hebron camp. So we cut back to uh, Salt Lake City. Again, we are, we are seeing Aaron and Elder Bushman and Elder Smith all discuss the best way to get to Rexburg, Idaho, and then reiterate that they're going to be heading there before they head on to, to Missouri's ready, and they go to build Zion. And then Aaron kind of has this outward rage about why they didn't warn everybody that this was coming and then there's a tirade by elder smith talking about how often the prophet warned the people to prepare for the end times and if they didn't heed it it was their own fault and how you should always be prepared so we're giving kind of a reasoning why you should join probably preparing a people prepper network and so anyway there's a long tirade and then it cuts back to the camp at hebron where uh they're having dinner because unlike the blue camps, the white camps are all perfectly stocked with food and generators and they have electricity and semi-running water and they have Zoom and they have and they have Zoom and they have all this great stuff. So after dinner they are invited up, each of them, to tell their stories about what's happened to them since the saints were called to the camps. And Nathan tells his story about being an MM and then going to Chicago to rescue Marie. And then he finishes out by going on a tirade about blue versus white saints and how the blue saints were foolish and how he, they are all exactly where God wants them and that how he's relieved because this has pushed uh, somebody close to him, back to him, talking about Marie and how she now, again, another tirade, about how women shouldn't be independent, talking about how she's now on the proper path, wanting marriage and children and all this stuff instead of wanting a career and education and, and all this stuff. So again, another tirade about what women shouldn't do, but written by a man. Again, gentlemen, I'm not an intersectional feminist. I'm just saying that the misogyny represented in this book ticks me off. So it's bad. All right. And I grew up in the South where men called you darling and sweetie. That doesn't bother me. It's just his condescending way of talking about what women should and shouldn't do that just sets me off. I hope you understand. Anyway, 
And then Denise uh, gets up and tells her story about how her parents, she lost them in California and she's been staying with the Shaws and that she wants to convert to LDS and can she be baptized? And everybody's, yes, we can baptize you. We can do all that here. So then they talk to um, Denise, uh, not Denise, but um, Carol, who tells them that Every time I say Carol, I think of Carol from The Walking Dead. That is just the vision I have in my head because she's strong, surviving mom and is just becoming kind of a badass in her own way. So I think of Carol from The Walking Dead. So that's who I'm picturing Carol to be, although I'm sure she's probably not got the really short haircut. But anyway, so she's talking about how her husband Aaron was a double agent is the one responsible for the Zoom network and that um, she's glad that uh, she finally finally got out of there and headed to the white camp and then the elder at Hebron kind of talks to Nathan and Marie off offline and he tells uh, Nathan tells him that their original mission was to get to Salt Lake City because the M&M M&Ms the M&Ms have been uh, order to congregate there, to meet there. So he goes, We, Marie and I have to get to Salt Lake City. At first he says, I have to get to Salt Lake City, and he's wanting to leave the, the girls at the Hebron camp. And Marie kind of pushes back and says, no, I want to go too. And he's happy she wants to go because that's where a wife should be with her husband. Stand by your man, you know, cute Tammy Wynette. And so... She's going to go with him, and he's going to leave Carol and Denise into the camp. And yes, Denise goes through all the classes that they have to do to convert. She passes the test, and she is actually baptized at the Hebron camp into the LDS church. And the, Her the Hebron elder, Clef, tells them that, yes, the girls will be well taken care of, and they should head on to Salt Lake City. He gives them a four-wheeler. He gives them a food, water, cash money, if they can find anyone that, that will take it for stuff, and kind of puts them on their way. He tells them to take the four-wheeler down to a river, find the canoe that they have hidden there, and they can canoe into the on the flood waters towards Salt Lake City. And that's what they do. They start heading towards Salt Lake City. But in between, according to Chad Daybell, in between Hebron and Salt Lake City is their hometown of Oren. And Marie wants to see if she can find her father because they've had no communication with Aaron since, since whenever. So they do kind of paddle their way toward their old hometown of Oren and they stop there. Meanwhile, we cut back to Garrett and UN and Commander Klopov, who remembers a Russian general that's overseeing this uh, district of the uh, United States. And they are heading toward Oren themselves, actually specifically to the ONSA data center. They want to take that over since all the um, intelligence information should still be in the systems there. They've heard that the former employees, some of the former employees are living there because there's generators and food and stuff like that. So he basically wants to go there, basically enslave these employees and make them gather information for the UN. And he knows that it's near 
Garrett's home, hometown of Orin, so Garrett is leading them there. They end up making it almost there until the floodwaters and damaged roads kind of stop them, and they end up camped at Utah Valley University in their parking lot overnight, about 20 miles from the data center. Uh, the next day, Garrett wakes up super early and knocks on the commander's door. He opens his door and he asks him if he can please have a couple of hours to go into Oren, take a jeep and go into Oren to explore his own old hometown. He's still looking for his son. He hopes he can bring him to justice and bring him to the UN. And Klopoff gives him permission, tells him to be back in two in one hour. So he jumps in a jeep and heads for Oren. He goes to his old house and sees that it's pretty much ransacked. And he goes into Denise's room and sees that pretty much anything that meant anything to Denise has been moved. So he wonders if perhaps she moved in with somebody else. And the only person he can think of that she felt even remotely close to was the Shaw's. So he jumps into his jeep and heads toward the Shaw house. Well... Of course, Nathan and Marie have camped under a, a tree near the Shaw house overnight so they can get, get there so they can get there in the morning, get a fresh start, and they're also heading for the Shaw house. But they get there, they see a Jeep parked outside, and of course it's Garrett's Jeep. And all they can see is a Jeep with a UN insignia on the door. And so they hide behind a wrecked car across the street and watch while Garrett is inside the Shaw's house. He notices that except for minor damage, it still appears to be intact. He goes into the uh, kitchen, opens a refrigerator, and a waft of stinkiness overtakes him. But he does see that there's still some fresh fruit in there that's not bad. So he says somebody must have been living here within the last few days, meaning Aaron. Aaron was still living there. He goes back to the bedrooms and notices uh, some of his daughter Denise's stuff in what was Marie's room. He especially notices a picture of him, his wife Vanessa, and Denise, which he picks up and takes with him. So he knows that she was living here. Now he just has to find her. So he exits and gets into his Jeep and drives back so that he'll be back within the hour. Now, of course, Nathan and Marie are watching from across the street, but all they can see is a figure in a UN uniform. And then when he gets in, all they can see is the back of his head. So they don't know it's Garrett and they watch him leave. And then they go in to the Shaw house. So the first thing uh, Nathan does is go into the kitchen and start looking for any food that they can take. And he finds... Uh, some fresh fruit that's still good, apples in the fridge that are still good. He also finds some canned goods and some crackers and cookies and stuff like that that are still in the cupboard. So he packs all that up while Marie goes into her childhood room and looks around. And she's sitting there on her um, bed crying. She's looking at a, um, I believe she said, a Miranda Lambert poster. And that she bought at a concert. She's also looking at um, a kind of a collage she had made while she was at the University of Utah and how she starts to cry because all of that is so meaningless now and that she knows what her calling is and that's to be a wife and hopefully a mother, not go to college, not go to concerts. Uh, yeah, more tirades. And then, of course, Nathan comes in and holds her and asks her what's wrong and she tells him what's wrong and they said, well, we need to get out of here. So, 
they pack up the food that they have and they go back down to their canoe, hop back in it, and start heading down to Salt Lake City. And they also kind of see the point of where the convoy is parked at the Utah Valley University, and they manage to avoid them and head on towards Salt Lake City. Meanwhile, uh, Garrett and Klompop and the UN are heading for the data center. They finally arrive. It, it was a hard trip. It took them all day to make it that 20 miles because of the condition of the roads. They ended up having to cross a river by floating some men across in a canoe and having them tie off ropes and then pull, have all the men in canoes pulling themselves across the river. So it was a long, drawn-out thing. They basically had to leave their Humvees and stuff. So they finally made it to the data center, and they don't see any guards outside. They manage to get into the campus pretty easily. They go up to one of the main buildings and knock on the door. Uh, a, gentle, a very tall, large gentleman with a scruffy beard opens the door and asks them, are they from the UN? And he goes, Klopop goes, yes, we're here to rescue you. Everybody's going to be all right, but I need you to gather all the employees here in the conference center. So he does. And he basically tells them that the, because of the presidential, the president has ordered that the UN has primary power in the United States now, and they are to surrender to the UN and provide them with all the intel that they need. Now, it's, it's important that I mention there are exactly 51 employees, former NSA employees living in this former data center now, 51. Seems like one too many, doesn't it? Now, of those 51, one named Henry stands up to Klopov and says he doesn't have any, he's the, he's the higher ranking one of all the people there. He says he doesn't have any orders, anything that would authorize him to turn over this intel to a foreign power. And until that comes down from the president himself or somebody representing the president, he's not going to do it. Well, Klopov basically orders him shot on sight. And a guard steps forward, aims his rifle, and shoots Henry in the head. And he dies on the floor in front of his entire rest of his co-worker. And Klopov said, that's my authorization. Do it or die. And, of course, the others step to it. Henry died a patriot. He told them that their new assignment was to give the UN the locations of any chipped American citizen that had not been brought into a camp. And he is to, they are to give them their location so they can start rounding up Americans, basically. So, while they're doing that, he goes into the command center of the NSA, gets on the satellite communications, and calls Moscow and tells them, and Beijing, that they can commence with the invasion. So remember, there was a coalition of four countries. So far, we know it's Russia and China. I have no idea who the other two countries are, but I'm guessing it's probably, I'm guessing in this book, it's probably Iran and probably North Korea is the other one. I'm just guessing. But those four countries, two of them we know for sure, are now going to start a bi-coastal invasion, east and west coast, from the Pacific and the Atlantic, invasion of the United States, because Klompoff have told them they now have the major NSA data center, and they have basically information about all the whereabouts of the military and U.S. citizens. Remember, in the last book, 
Daybell made it abundantly clear that because the United States were so involved in foreign wars that there wasn't really a military presence big enough in the U.S. to fight. Now, we all know that's kind of BS. There's plenty of American military here in the United States, but there's also National Guard and Army and military reserves. And 40, 400 million armed United States citizens. Come on. This was all too easy. Back to Carol at the Hebron camp. She is uh, sleeping and she awakens with a chill one night and sees light cascading into her room. And from that light emerges, emerges the spirit of Helen Foster's, Nathan's mom, Garrett's dead wife. Remember, the one that died of cancer. And Helen proceeds to tell Carol that Vanessa, Denise's mom and the one that Garrett cheated on her with, is wanting to be baptized as a Mormon in the afterlife so that she can enter paradise. So she's had her life review and saw how much her having an affair with Garrett hurt so many lives, and she's repented for that in the afterlife, and now wants to pass through the veil into paradise, and could Carol enter her name in the registry of LDS members? I'm not sure. Can LDS members do this? I mean, after, is... is Clearing people in the afterlife, a thing. I know Catholics do it. I know Catholics can, you know, save people. You can pray and get somebody out of purgatory in the Catholic religion, but is that a thing in LDS? Can some one of my LDS members let me know down below? But uh, Carol says, of course she'll do it. She just needs to get, you know, Elder, Elder Cliff's permission since it's his camp. And Helen says, I'll be back. So she flies off in another bolt of light. Carol goes to Elder Clef, told him what happened. He said it's actually been helping a lot, help, happening a lot lately that people from the other side have been coming through asking for others that have passed without being fully baptized to be joined, and they've been doing it. So he takes her to the records room with a laptop where he says he can enter, she can enter all of Vanessa's information. So they put her in a white gown and they put her in this room and then Helen reappears to her holding a book that she says contains all of Vanessa's information and all of Vanessa's family's information, which they have all converted from Catholicism to LDS in the afterlife and could Carol enter them all into the, the records of the Mormon church. And so while Vanessa's holding this book, an angel's holding this book, Carol types it all in and they are officially LDS members, I guess. And then Helen disappears. And then Carol collapses off of her chair onto the floor. She can't move. She can't speak. Elder Klepp runs in and says, Oh, it's okay. You've just been paralyzed by all the glory. <clears throat> Meanwhile, we cut back to Aaron and Elder Smith and Elder Bushman trying to make it uh, to Rexburg, and on their way to Rexburg, they have to pass through Bountiful, Utah. And just as they're heading for the temple there at Bountiful to stop over, a U.S. Army helicopter appears and aims its guns at the three men. Well, Aaron sacrifices himself and runs toward the, ele runs toward the heli helicopters while the two elders, Bushman and Smith, disappear into the bushes. Aaron surrenders. They the U.S. 
army of pilots jump out with their guns. They threaten to kill him. They basically kick him around a little bit, put him into the helicopter. Inside the helicopter, he notices a bunch of other men and women sitting there that are prisoners. Uh, none of them have chips, evidently. They're all Mormons. Remember, a lot of talk about Mormons being the ones that didn't take the chip and giving the greatest trouble to the U.N. Evidently, the U.S. military is also helping the U.N. Remember, the president, Obama, allowed the U.N. to come in and restore peace, so the military is also working with the U.N., and now they've captured these people without chips, and they're taking them in. Meanwhile, uh, Nathan and Marie have made it as far as Draper, Utah, and they're meeting with a uh, elder at that temple named Elder Witten, and basically he's telling them a story of how uh, UN forces have already been close to Draper, as well as looters, and the temple was protected by the power of the priesthood. Like Voltron, or Power Rangers or something. Ready to form Voltron! Activate interlock! Dynatherms connected! Infracells up! Mega thrusters are go! Go Voltron Force! feet and legs form arms and body and I'll form the head Then we cut back to Elder Bushman who and Smith who make it to the Bountiful Temple and there inside the temple is the prophet or the president of the Mormon church waiting for them at Bountiful to go on to Rexburg with. So then we cut back to Nathan and Marie with Witten at the uh, Draper Temple. They coordinate a Zoom call with Elder Miller. Remember Elder Miller is, you know, the trainer of the MMs who, who is in... Uh, Rexburg already, and uh, they have a, he has a call with him, and he actually tells Elder Miller that he and Marie married in uh, in Nauvoo, and uh, Elder Miller's a little upset at first, but then realizes it must be God's will, so he blesses it, and then he tells them that he needs to that their mission, if he that they're kind of dispersing their mission of Salt Lake City, and now that the whole Mormon shebang is going to reunite in Rexburg instead of Salt Lake City, that those people at Salt Lake City had already left Salt Lake City, so there was no need to go there, but they were going to dissolve all the small blue camps. So these people were either going to go back into the wards to fight, or they were going to come to Rexburg. So he tells them that that's mainly why he wanted the MMs force to help dissolve those camps and move people toward Rexburg. And they, he also tells him that a contingent of high-ranking elders, Bushman, Smith, and the prophet himself, are at the Bountiful Temple, and they need to be gotten to Rexburg, and that's his mission. And he tells Elder Witten to give them all the supplies that they need to make that mission happen. So 
Elder Whitten, after speaking with Elder Miller, gives Nathan and Marie a four-wheeler, food, gas, and tells them to head to Bountiful to get the contingent of high-ranking LDS members to get them to Rexburg. Cut to Garrett and Klompoff at Copperton, Utah, which is a holding camp for American citizens that have been captured. There's two types of camps. There's death camps and work camps. The death camps, basically people are starved and basically pass away. Just think of a Nazi concentration camp. And they're made to fight over what little food they're given, much to the amusement of the UN guards. And then there's the work camps where people are held, fed adequately, given medical treatment, and they're held there until they can be dispersed to help rebuild the infrastructure of the United States. And Garrett's job, along with the other UN soldiers there, is to process every single prisoner brought into this processing center and decide death or life. So basically, if you're a blue-collar tradesman, a plumber, an electrician, a farmer, a landscaper, you know, environmental scientist, something, you know, contractor, carp, you know, anything that could be considered useful, you were sent to a work camp. And then everyone else, be it you know, banker, lawyer, storyteller, like comedian like me, anybody, like my wife would be sent to a work camp because she's very useful and very mechanically inclined. The only thing I can do usefully is cook. I'd probably end up on the wrong camp. But basically, I mean, I'm a computer person too, but they really don't need computer people. They're talking about how all these bankers and lawyers and, you know, computer people are useless. And so they're putting them uh, into death camps instead. But they're also trying to keep panic down. So they're literally making them believe that getting on the bus to the death camp is the place they want to be because that's actually the good camp. They're going to be used as, as workforce where the other people going to the other camp, they're the ones that are going to die. So, and then they tell them all kind of an opposite story so that no one panics. And so... Garrett says he always feels a, you know, feels a twinge of guilt when he sends a lawyer to a death camp or, a, you know, or a, and a doctor to the work camp or what have you. So anyway, that's what they're doing. Meanwhile, cut to Nathan and Marie heading toward Bountiful on their four-wheeler. And when they're passing a little valley at the foot of Bountiful, they hear a faint yell for help. In fact, the spirit speaks to Marie and tells her to cut the engine off the four-wheeler, and they do, and then they hear a very faint cry for help. And when they they follow it, they get down to an elderly woman that's been trapped under a collapsed shed, and they free her. She has an injured arm, but they free her, and she says, oh, thank goodness, I've, I've been laying here for days. I would have already been dead of dehydration if I didn't have a water bottle. I'm a I'm a teacher, I've been a teacher for 30 years, and I'm a traveling teacher that helps out, you know, single moms on welfare. I, I come and teach their children at home. I don't know where that program exists. But, uh, so that's what I do, and I got trapped on my way to one of my family's house, to one of my client's houses. So they take her up to Bountiful Temple with them. As soon as they get there, Nathan is prepared to give them the password so they can actually get in, but the guard recognizes the elderly woman and lets them ride in. Turns out it's Elder Smith's wife. So he has saved the wife of 
Elder Smith. And once they get there, they are all called, all, all Mormons in camps, in temples, everywhere are called to one large Zoom conference, Zoom conference, uh, to hear the prophet speak. Now, of course, the prophet is there in Bountiful with them, so they're seeing it live. Everybody else is seeing it on Zoom. And so he tells them that it's almost time to prepare New Jerusalem and Zion, and everybody is to leave immediately for Rexburg, which will be a temporary headquarters. That everybody is to converge on Rexburg, Idaho. Meanwhile, cut back to Garrett and the UN camp, and they are enjoying a little, a little bit of entertainment in a uh, conference center at a public park in the, in the Copperton. They're watching the bi-coastal invasion begin, and they're literally, like, watching it live-streamed. So they're watching uh, these foreign forces invade New York and L.A. That's where it started, and they're watching them kill all unarmed U.S. citizens with machetes and with guns, and Garrett's getting sick while all the other U.N. people are just cheering, watching the downfall of the United States. And Garrett slips out. He feels nauseous. He slips back to his room and falls down on his knees and asks Heavenly Father to give him strength to get through this and to help turn and help make a difference to turn this away. And as he prayed, he heard an audible voice say, Soon. Cut back to him the next day. He's back processing prisoners. And Aaron is brought before him. And he recognizes Aaron, and Aaron says he's a computer guy, worked for the government, blah, 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 blah. Garrett's partner wants to send him to a death camp. He says, we don't need computer technicians. We've got too many of them. And uh, Garrett says, no, because he did work for the NSA, he may have valuable intel. We need to at least extract all the information he has before we kill him. So he sends him to the work holding camp. Meanwhile, we cut back to Nathan, Marie, and the Smiths heading for Rexburg. They're dressed in camo on four-wheelers, and they kind of travel under cover of night because they have to go past Hill, Force, uh, Hill Air Force Base, where that aren't those Army helicopters came from, and also they want to stay out of sight of anyone UN that might be around. While they're on their trip, um, Elder Smith tells Nathan, what happened to Aaron, and he, she, he apologizes for not telling Marie sooner what happened to her father, but they had to keep clear heads, and basically Marie and Nathan cry over Aaron, thinking he's probably dead. Another night at the UN camp, the peacekeepers are still watching the invasion. Uh, they're you know starting to head closer to the middle of the country. They're in different cities. So basically, um, Garrett decides it's time to help get Aaron out of the camp, the two of them to make an escape. So he heads out to where the prisoners are held at the work camp. Um, he sees that the guard has shot somebody that tried to escape, climb the fence. And he relieves the guard and tells him to go get some food, that he'll watch the prisoners for 10 minutes. He yelled at Aaron. Aaron came, came forward to the fence, and Garrett pretends to be angry, telling him to kneel before his master. He's going to give him all the information he wants. And then while Aaron's kneeled down, he whispers to him that uh, 
according to their data, Marie and Nathan are still alive, and he thought Denise was too. He still yells at him, you know, to make a good show of it, and then he says, I'm going to get you out of here. I'll let you know how I'm going to do it. The guard returns. Garrett returns to his room, where he prayed again. Then we return to Nathan, Marie, and the Smiths, who've made it past Leighton, Utah, or on the outskirts of Ogden, Utah now. And they've been riding for 24 hours straight. They stop for a rest. They go into an abandoned house where they found, you know, no electricity, no water, but three queen beds. And they check for bed bugs and then take a little nap. And while the others are sleeping, Nathan gets out and goes to scout the general area. He hid one of the four-wheelers and rode his other down to what appeared to be a lake. And while he's riding toward the lake, he actually sees a man in a motorboat coming up and he said the Spirit of God speaks to him and tells him to stop the man in the boat. So he kind of follows him along the shore. He flags him down. It turns out it's his friend Dallin Reed from the MM Missionaries. And he says that he's actually been assigned to this general area to help people get across the flood waters to get toward closer to Rexburg. And he, he can take them first by boat and then by truck as close as he can to Rexburg. He's going to take him, take him a longer way, but the safest way to get there. So Nathan immediately goes up and wakes the others and takes them down to the river where they hide the uh, four-wheelers in an abandoned shed for Dallin and his people to use later on. Dallin has gone to refuel the boat. He comes back. Nathan introduces Dallin to the others, and they get into the boat and start making their way closer to Idaho. At Logan, Utah, they stop at a car dealership where uh, Dallin has stashed his truck among the other new cars still sitting there. They hide the boat. They head out in a truck for Cache Valley, which was a temporary camp set, set up by LDS for people on their way to Rexburg. And when they made it there, they just noticed all the rows of white tents. They slept at Logan for the night to Garrett. He woke up early. Next day, he went down to see Aaron. He slipped him a note, which said, leave tonight, cut fence, get in the red jeep. So he knows he's going to cut the fence open, and they're going to get into a red jeep and leave, and then Aaron swallowed the note after he read it. That night, while the UN, uh, the UN peacekeepers are watching, again, the invasion of the U.S., they're now in, watching them invade and take over Atlanta, um, Aaron slips out. He goes into his room. He says a little prayer. He thinks about why he should or should not do this. He's having second thoughts, but then he had a warm rush of light come over him, and it was the Spirit telling him he needs to do this. So he goes into the kitchen. He loads up two duffel bags full of food. He also starts looking for something that can cut the fence. He finds something behind the trash cans, a, a bolt cutter. He takes the food out to a red Jeep that is a brand new, like, public use Jeep that, or, you know, private, a regular old vehicle that somehow the UN has commandeered. And uh, he goes out, he loads it up, he makes sure it has gas in it, and he then goes down to where the prisoners are kept. He convinces the guard to go for a bite to eat, and he cuts open a section of fence. Aaron, of course, notices this happening, 
And when it's done, he walks through the fence and they go down to the red Jeep. They jump in, they take the back way out of town and go all, kind of down a ravine in the dark without headlights and manage to slip into the night. Klopoff is awakened the next morning, shouts of the prisoners, uh, saying that all the work prisoners have escaped. They all found that gaping hole in the fence and have scattered and gotten away. The guard is, that was on duty that night, has, they shoot him. Then they find the bolt cutter and they realize that somebody is in their midst that's helped them escape. Garrett was, of course, meet, missing from roll call, so he knows exactly who it is, and they send out helicopters looking for the red jeep. Meanwhile, we cut back to the Jeep where Garrett and Aaron are trying to get out of town and they've gotten as far as a remote canyon when the Jeep runs out of gas. Luckily, there were some abandoned houses nearby and they take their food and walk into one and fall asleep. They didn't bother to hide the Jeep or anything. I don't understand that. But the UN helicopters easily spot the red Jeep. They land and they start looking for Garrett and any prisoners that may be with him. They pretty much decided he's, they're probably hiding in some of those nearby houses, so they start a house-to-house -house search. Garrett and Aaron are woken up by noise. Uh, Garrett says, look, I, we were dumb to stop here. It was my fault. I should have known better, but you need to hide in the basement, and I'll take the brunt of this. So he puts Aaron and the two duffel bags of food in the basement, and he walks out, hands up, and surrenders to Klopoff and the UN guards. He tries to say that he was kidnapped, blah, 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 but they don't believe him, and they shoot him three times in the chest, killing him. And this was all filmed by the UN for propaganda that will be shown to people that they consider might be possibly thinking about betraying them. Then they take off in the helicopters. They don't bother to search for anyone else. They just take off in the helicopters and leave Garrett's body lying outside the house. Aaron comes out of the house after he hears the helicopters fly off and he sees Garrett's body. He mourns for his friend. He wraps his friend in a blanket and he's trying to figure out what to do. And the spirit speaks to him and tells him to check the shed which he does, and he finds a full gas can there, and he pulls, pours all 10 gallons of gas into the Jeep. He doesn't want to leave Garrett's body behind, so he puts Garrett's body in the back of the Jeep. He puts the food in the Jeep, and he cranks up, and he starts heading for, also for Rexburg, because somebody, everybody knows to go to Rexburg for some reason. Anyway, uh, it's starting to snow. Uh, suddenly out of nowhere starting to snow and meanwhile back at Hebron Helen again appears to Carol in a beam of light and tells her that her husband is in trouble and they need to go get him immediately and to take a sled and a body bag okay so Carol not wanting to argue with ghost Helen runs to Elder Clip and two other gentlemen that are there and who are preparing snowmobiles in case there's a they fear a blizzard might be coming. He tells them, she tells them what Helen told her. They agree to leave first thing in the morning to go find Aaron. And, you know, Helen told them exactly where Aaron would be. So the next morning they leave on snowmobiles. They take the sled and the body bag. And they find Aaron at the red jeep 
suffering from extreme hypothermia. They give him hot drinks. They wrap him up in warm thermal blankets. They get him over it. They put him on a snowmobile. They find Garrett's body in the Jeep and the, all the food and stuff, and they load all that up, and they head back to Hebron. When they get back to the camp, uh, everybody is delighted to see Aaron, but then they realize that the body in the bag is Denise's father. And before they tell Denise, go get Denise, Elder Cliff tells everyone, I had a dream about this man and he should be alive. Open the body bag toward his face. And so they do, and Elder Cliff literally lays his hands on him and orders his spirit to return to his body. And they resurrect Garrett. Like Lazarus, they, they, they resurrect Garrett. And then they go get Denise, and she's reunited with her father, happy times. And then he's relieved to hear that Vanessa is safe on, on, on the other side of the veil, and that her and Helen are good friends. And that it, he said that he saw his life real, and it was not good, but that it was Helen had convinced God to give him a second chance, and he would be forever grateful to Nathan's mom. And anyway, we cut back to Nathan, Marie, and Smith's. They're uh, made it as far as Wyoming, and they're heading for the town of Acton, Wyoming. It takes them about eight hours to get there. Meanwhile, they're in a truck. Meanwhile, Marie is starting to have some sort of emotional breakdown. She's acting weird. She's crying. She's laughing. She's just having a complete emotional breakdown. And anymore. <laughs> I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out of here. Calm down. Get a hold of yourself. Calm down. Now get back to your seat. I'll take care of this. Calm down. Calm down. Get a hold of yourself. Do you want another phone? Everything's pretty cold. Sister Green, I'll handle this. So, when they get to Acton, there's a church there, and they ask if they have any doctors, and there is a doctor there, so he examines Marie, has her pee in a cup, puts a strip in the cup, and guess what? She's pregnant. She's going nuts because she's pregnant. <sighs> After a little bit of rest, they finally make it to Rexburg, where all the saints, including the president of the church, have gathered at the BYU-Idaho's campus, and that's where... Their temporary headquarters are going to be. They do a Zoom call with Hebron, find out that Garrett and Aaron are alive, and there is a, a pilot at, at the BYU campus that can fly them under radar at night to Hebron and fly all the elders back. So Nathan goes with them while they're flying overhead. They do notice that, indeed, God has created a, a mirages that hide all the temples and all the temporary camps. And then uh, near Park City, Utah, they almost hit a mountain, but God miraculously saves them. In fact, he tells the pilot not to watch, just to close his eyes and let God direct. You know, like Luke Skywalker in the in Star Wars and uh, New Hope, you know how he destroys the, the Death Star by just using the Force? That's what happened here. Anyway, they make it to the Hebron airstrip where Elder Smith, Elder Bushman, all the elders have 
gathered, they put them on the plane, they fly everybody to Rexburg. When they get to Rexburg, uh, Marie, who stayed behind because she's now in throes of morning sickness and more pregnancy crazy, according to Chad Daybell. Again, this book was also read by Seth Daybell. They make it to Carol ha has a cousin named Mark that lived at Rexburg before all this happened. And so Carol, uh, Marie is staying with him. And so they all go to Mark's uh, house, which has a full solar generator, running water from a well, an actual functioning house. They also pitch some tents nearby the house, so there's plenty of room, and they all live there together. Elder Smith comes up and uh, wants to talk to Nathan and Garrett and Aaron about the next phase of their mission. Uh, Garrett makes amends and is welcomed back into the Mormon church, is rebaptized into the Mormon church. And they all go down to the BYU-Idaho Center to listen to a talk by the president of the Mormon church himself, the prophet himself. And it's Zoom call. Thousands of people are watching. And basically, because many of the saints on the Quorum of Seventy have died, they announce the new members of that quorum. And they also talk about the next phase, which is building an army to, re to free America from the clutches of the coalition. And the army is going to be known as the Saints of God. And they ask Garrett to lead that since he's the only one with a military training evidently there. And, Nate, and they ask Nathan to help him. Meanwhile, Aaron, they give him a computer room filled with former NSA equipment so that he can watch the movements of the UN and they can know exactly where the UN is. One final obstacle is a Chinese contingent coming through the area and basically Nathan and a few other of the Mormon men dress as soldiers. They go out with Garrett who pretends to be a UN commando that has secured the area and he talks to the Chinese commander and convinces him they've already taken this area and there's no need for him to go in. So somehow they convince him and the Chinese convoy rolls on through with no issue. They go back to Rexburg, and as winter starts to set in, we realize that the entirety of the winter will be sent, spent with these guys training to become commandos, to be the opposition army against the coalition invasion. And so as this story stops, we are shown people training, you know, visualize people training, they're building weapons, they're building, making uniforms, they're learning all kinds of stuff, and we are preparing for all-out war, which will no doubt take place in the fourth and final book. And that's where we are. That's the end of Days of Fury, Chad Daybell's third book in the uh, apocalyptic series, and I'll be back very soon with the fourth and final book, and I hope you enjoyed this. Until next time, Keto Comics.